Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and if you're new to the show or you've missed a few, you can find all our past shows and get caught up at our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can reach me at my email, hope at upc-online.org. So it's May, and we are celebrating two milestones, two moments here in May, and one is that this is the one-year anniversary of this podcast. We started the Hope for the Animals podcast for UPC one year ago, last May in 2020, and the time has just flown by. I can't believe it's been a year. And we've grown considerably in that time. We're up to 6,000 downloads now, and it's been just a really incredible journey, a learning experience that I hope to continue, and thank you for listening and coming along on this journey with me. And also in May, it's International Respect for Chickens Day. UPC has this important day and month of action every year. And to commemorate this event today, we have Karen Davis, UPC's founder and president on the podcast. We're going to jump right into our conversation with Karen, but I did want to let you know about a video that we created for International Respect for Chickens Day and for ongoing education and outreach, and it's called Do You Know Who Chickens Are?, It's under five minutes, and we're encouraging UPC supporters and, I hope, listeners of this podcast as well to do some digital leafleting and share this video. You know, we haven't been able to get out in the streets and actually reach people one-on-one and in person for over a year now. But sharing this powerful video can be a great way to touch people's hearts, to help them to see who chickens really are and what they endure in the exploitive chicken industry for their flesh and eggs. So I'll put a link to that video in the show notes, and I really encourage you to go and watch the video and please share it. Share it far and wide. Share it on all your platforms. That's why we made it, so we can do some digital leafleting and really get this video out there. Okay, so this will be the third time that Karen has joined us on the podcast, and she's just so knowledgeable and has been thinking deeply about these issues for decades. So she had some really interesting philosophies to share, and we're going to get right into it. So I'll just tell you a little about Karen Davis. She is the founder and president of United Poultry Concerns, a national nonprofit focused on chickens and other domestic birds since 1990. She was inducted into the National Animal Rights Hall of Fame for Outstanding Contributions to Animal Liberation. Karen is the author of numerous books, essays, articles, and campaigns, and the founding editor of UPC's quarterly magazine, Poultry Press. So let's bring Karen onto the show. Hey, Karen, are you there? I'm here, Hope, and I am ready to talk. All right, wonderful. Well, it's so good to have you here today. How how are you? How are the birds doing at the sanctuary there? 
Well, I'm doing well and the birds are having a wonderful time because they're out in the sunshine and the weather is warming up and they're full of uh, spring hormones <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're all excited about everything all the time. So we just have to make sure that we uh, look for their eggs in some of the wooded parts of our sanctuary and uh, make sure that we do not let any new chicks to hatch because that's their tendency at this time of year. So we're being very careful, but at the same time, uh, enjoying the fact that the chickens are having a very good time and they're quite vocal at very early in the morning, even when it's dark out almost, you know, they're up and about running around and just enjoying their life. I love it. That's wonderful. So Karen, I wanted to start today by asking you about something that I've heard you say over the years that I just love. And you've said that you believe that chickens have earth rights. What do you mean by this? Can you elaborate on this, that chickens have earth rights? Sure. By earth rights, I mean that chickens and all animals have a right to experience the earthly satisfactions that they evolved in nature to enjoy. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're always going to be happy and they're always going to be safe because that's not how the natural world works. But it means that chickens, like all animals, have a genetic patterning within themselves that enables them and invites them to do things and experience things that are consistent with who they are, who they want to be, and what they want to do. And I think that one of the terrible things that we do to chickens and other animals whom we incarcerate, uh, hold captive, and, and so on, is to deny them the opportunity that they have a right to experience, which is the opportunity for their earth rights to be on the earth in a way that suits their nature and brings to them the ultimate potential that they have and want to unfold when they are free to do so and not being prevented by their captors by their their captivity, by their incarceration. So I believe we all have earth rights, you might say. Uh, Humans seem to not want to take much advantage of their earth rights (laughs) quite often, but chickens definitely want to. And one thing that I have seen in the many decades that I have been keeping and caring for chickens since 1985 is how ready they are, even if they've never known anything but a battery cage, an industrial compound, or some such experience, uh, how ready they are to be on the earth, to experience the ground and the sunshine and the trees and the natural life that, again, isn't just an environment surrounding them, but really which is an internal environment, something which is alive and ready to be activated within themselves. An inherent quality, 
something that exactly. they that they feel. Yeah, I love that. It's an inherent quality that can either be unfolded and realized or that can be inhibited and frustrated. Well, I really love that earth rights. I think that it is a very important concept that all animals deserve. So Karen, we are now in the month of May, and that means United Poultry Concerns International Respect for Chickens Day. And the actual day is May 4th, but of course we celebrate all month. And I want to know why you created this day of action and what it means to you and to the chickens. Well, we, United Poultry Concerns, officially started International Respect for Chickens Day in 2005. And what prompted International Respect for Chickens Day was a show which was then called Le L-E Show, S-H-O-W, which was hosted by the star of The Simpsons, Harry Shearer. And on May 14th of 2000, uh, Harry Shearer, proclaimed that day, which happened to be Mother's Day that year, as Respect the Chickens Day, which he said was because hens are justly praised as exemplars of the best and most devoted motherhood. Mm. And when I happened to hear that on the radio, I said, well, you know, that is really a great idea. And we should take that up and we should make the idea of Respect for Chickens Day an annual event. Of course, we want every day to be Respect for Chickens Day, but to set aside a particular day, which has been ever since May 4th, and for that matter, a particular month, which is the month of May, as International Respect for Chickens Day and International Respect for Chickens Month is a great idea. And uh, we're going to adopt that. And as a matter of fact, I immediately wrote to Harry Shearer and invited our members to write to him to thank him for uh, suggesting uh, Respect for Chickens Day with the idea that mother hens are themselves paragons of excellent motherhood, of caring, devoted, attentive, protective motherhood. And so that is what launched International Respect for Chickens Day and month of May. Yeah. So uh, so what do you encourage people to do for International Respect for Chickens Day? Well, we ask people, we encourage people to do an action, all capital letters, <laughs> of compassion for chickens on May 4th or sometime that's convenient during the month of May where they can choose what they would like to do for chickens to educate people about the joy and the sorrow of the life of chickens, the joy of chickens when they're happy and enjoying enjoying their earth rights mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, being uh, able to fulfill their nature as best they can, and the suffering they endure in the unnatural conditions we force them to live in, uh, ranging from the pollution, the suffering in their bodies from the 
a breeding that has been imposed upon them, that causes them to be lame, that causes them to experience diseases that they would never, ever experience in the natural world, in the tropical forests that they evolved to live in, in Southeast Asia, and to really help people to understand how chickens suffer in the conditions we force them to live in versus who they are when they have a choice of exercising their nature as chickens. And given a choice, they will always, unless they are so debilitated they can't make a choice anymore, they will choose to take their dust baths and their sun baths and they will choose to socialize with, with one another and they will choose to jump up on tree limbs and other perches and they will just generally express through their bright eyes and their whole body language uh, and their voices that they are enjoying their lives. And so we want people to understand who chickens are when they are not suffering the debilitations that exploiters impose on them, because we think people will then better understand the kind and the intensity of suffering chickens endure when they are deprived of everything that makes life meaningful and happy for them as chickens. Hmm. So you are a wonderful writer, and I know that language is very important to you. You have your PhD in English. How does our language reflect our speciesist worldview? And of course, speciesism is when we falsely assume that one species is dominant over the other or more important than the other. What are some examples where we can challenge and dismantle our speciesist language? Well, a very important area, which has recently received a lot of attention, is in using pronouns that Mm. make it clear that animals, that is other than human animals, and of course, we're stuck with this annoying non-human animals yeah. <laughs> terminology. And we haven't really come up with a handy way of referring to the members of other species that distinguishes them when needed from the human animal. Yeah. Uh, and so we end up painfully falling back on the term non-human animal. So we still have to grapple with that problem. Yeah. Yeah. But in the meantime, there are ways that we can make it clear to ourselves and to anybody we are speaking with and uh, writing for through the pronouns we use that other animals, non-human animals are not things. They are not objects like tables and chairs and stones. They are not its and witches, but they are whose. They are someone who, not something which. They are he's and she's. And so within the news media, for example, the Associated Press has a set of recommendations that have been used by the Associated Press and by other uh, news media where they kind of lay down the law about what is acceptable in speaking about non-human animals. In other words, 
If you don't know the sex of the animal, you should always call the animal it. And frankly, as we can see, even in news coverage to this very day, very often when a dog or a cat or a chicken or virtually any animal is clearly understood to be either a he or a she, let's say in a story about somebody's companion animal, that the language of it will still be used Mm -hmm. by the journalist in speaking about the animal who is clearly somebody's companion animal. So uh, the problem remains rampant within the news media. And uh, one reason I strongly believe is that there has always been in our society a desire among the media and in society in general to sound scientific, to make sure that we are not going to be accused of sentimentalizing animals and anthropomorphizing them and making it sound like, God forbid, <laughs> that they are have feelings, mm-hmm. they have desires and interests that are like what we as human beings have. There has been this effort to radically dissociate uh, other animals from human beings Uh, not only as a matter of fact, but reflected in the rhetoric or the language that we use to talk about them. And so now we are trying very hard as an animal advocacy movement to make it clear that uh, we have to speak about animals in a way that accurately and justly represents them as He's and she's because in nature, in biology, birds, mammals, fishes are male or female. If we are uncertain whether the uh, animal is a male or female, we can say he or she, or we can simply choose a uh, pronoun, calling them either he or she. And I noticed, for example, in reading articles about uh, human beings, that the writer will frequently, when they're speaking in generalities about human beings, they will use the term he in some sentences or paragraphs, and then they'll switch to she in another paragraph or sentence. Or they will simply use the plural uh, pronoun they, uh, which I do all the time. You say, you know, an animal who feels this way, well, we know they suffer. So we have all kinds of options that we need to adopt and can easily adopt. We need to become conscious. We need to become conscious of our language as animal activists, and we need to help other people become conscious. And I notice, I'll just say quickly that occasionally somebody will call me about particularly a rooster they want to get rid of. Okay, well, we got this rooster and we don't really want him anymore. We need to get rid of it. Can you find it a home? And I'll say, well, what, you want to find a home for him? They'll say, huh, what? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, him. Uh, yeah, so do you think you can find it a home? Because <laughs> they just, they, there's that way of speaking and thinking. Anyway, it's yeah. a very important task because language is itself, speech is itself a form of action. And it has huge consequences 
for how we think about and how we treat our fellow creatures. So it matters. Another term that I have written extensively about is the term euthanasia, which has been uh, adopted by the news media and even horrifically by members of the animal advocacy community as a synonym for even the worst kinds of killing of animals. And it has been adopted from uh, animal production backgrounds, from the American Veterinary Medical Association, from animal sciences, from the Biomedical Association, and other institutionalized exploiters of animals. So I often feel that a lot of times animal advocates want to sound scientific and don't want to sound anthropomorphic. So we'll adopt uh, the language of science in order to sound more credible. But the fact is that the term uh, euthanasia has a very specific meaning that we do not want to cheapen and turn into an or- Orwellian opposite. And yet this has been happening in virtually all language sectors. And uh, it's something that we have got to combat and uh, not allow ourselves to be part of. And the term euthanasia means a good death. EU is a Latin term, I'm sorry, a Greek term that means good or well, like euphoria, feeling well. And then euthanasia, thanasia, and thanatos are Greek terms for death. So a good death, a humane death, a merciful death is what this term means. And to hear anybody, including animal activists, or to read them uh, using the term euthanasia to talk about mass killing of pigs and chickens and turkeys, for example, by turning off all of the electricity and turning up the heat in their confinement facilities and forcing them to die a death of pure, unadulterated agony as was done last summer and is done all the time because diseases, mass diseases like avian influenza are constantly breaking out in animal industrial operations. And animals are being uh, tortured slowly to death with carbon dioxide by turning up the heat and uh, turning off the ventilation and in all kinds of ways that are a death that you, if it were a human being or if it were a group of human beings, never would we call that kind of a death or those kinds of deaths if humans were the victims, euthanasia, which means that while it may seem like on one hand, uh, people have simply forgotten or never knew what the term euthanasia actually means, at the same time, since we don't use that term to characterize horrible deaths of human beings, that we do know instinctively or subconsciously that the word euthanasia means a merciful death and not a horrific death. We have to be vigilant and we have to take issue with it because uh, it means the opposite of how it's uh, become inserted into public discourse. Yes, and and terms that we can use are they were killed, they were (laughs) massacred. I mean, what, what are some of the other terms that we could use instead of euthanasia? Well, we can say they were murdered, which they were. 
Yeah. Uh, they were destroyed. Uh, they were tortured to death, slowly to death. They were killed. killed. Yeah. Again, we need to we need to enlarge our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Um, I have also written about how when we speak about animals, we don't want to actually speak, as I've heard many people do over the years, talk about hens used for egg production as layers. Uh, at least let us say laying hens. If we're going to speak about chickens used in the meat industry. We don't want to talk about animals and call them by the name they're used for as a noun. At the very least, we want to use that term strictly as an adjective. This is how they are used. This is not who they inherently are. Mm. So if I'm writing and depending on who my target audience is, I may find that I need to use the term broiler chickens. But the term broiler is an industry term, obviously. And so I always put the term broiler chickens, I put the term broiler in quotation marks Mm. so that I'm drawing attention to the fact that this is a specialized term, hey, hey, that I don't really mean to call them broilers chickens, but that it's an industry term that in these um, conditions I'm, I'm using, but then I, I, I apologize to the chickens for using oh. and don't really mean it. Uh, one thing we can do when we're talking about chickens who have been bred specifically for meat production or for the meat industry is to simply call them chickens, call mm. them chickens. And of course we can call hens who are used for egg production. We, can, we should simply call them hens. We can also call them chickens. Uh, The thing is, we want to be conscious of every word we employ and not just use it um, without thinking. Yeah, It's got to be a conscious action on our part that we choose this word because this is the word we mean to use in this context. So you've also, along these lines, you have also talked recently about not wanting to use the term meat anymore. Another uh, evolving of language. Can you elaborate on this one? Sure, Hope. Well, the word meat has always disgusted me, particularly when I think about the animals from whom the meat is obtained by force. And so I did write an article, which is easily available on our website and also in our latest issue of our quarterly magazine, Poultry Press. I stopped saying meat, and here's why. I think when we're talking about food particularly, we understandably use the term meat. I don't eat meat anymore, or we really need to stop eating meat and eating more plant-based foods and so forth. But I think that particularly in our society and in the language that we use in the 20th and 21st century, and in the experience that most people who eat meat have, is that the animals are completely forgotten and ignored in the term meat. People eat meat. They don't think of themselves as eating animals. They go to the supermarket to buy meat. And I really believe that at a very deep level, you know, at some level, people will say, oh, yeah, well, of course, I realize that this was this was this is an animal or was an animal or part of an animal. I think that for the most part, conventionally, 
the term meat has become separated from animal in people's minds and experience. Mm -hmm. And so I find the term meat to be offensive. And when we're trying to invoke the animals in people's minds and not simply talk about everything as if it's all just about food. Well, I buy meat from a humane farmer. Well, you mean you buy slaughtered animals from a humane farmer? Uh, oh, um, well, I guess so. But yeah, but they're slaughtered humanely. Well, um, do you know how they're slaughtered? I mean, it's, the word meat just shuts off conversation pretty much. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, animals, that's a kind of launching point and a justified one. But we want to make sure that we're not just talking about meat all the time, even when we're talking about encouraging people to want to be vegan, to try vegan foods. And as I said in my article, I am thrilled that I can go into a supermarket now and increasingly see not even not only food products, but even household products and cosmetic products declaring <laughs> that they are vegan. Uh, this is something that back in the 80s and 90s was like a dream that we yeah. used to talk about. Do you think yeah. you could ever get uh, producers and uh, the makers of, of food products and, and other consumer products to actually call them vegan? And there were those who said, oh, no, if you put the term vegan on it, you know, nobody's going to want to buy it. But we're finding that that's not true at all. Yeah. And that vegan is becoming a uh, conventional term and not just a pejorative term. It's uh, one that enough people apparently are drawn to that I've even seen uh, some makeup in the local Walgreens uh, declaring quite uh, visibly on the label that it's a vegan product. Mm. So that means that our campaigns on behalf of veganism are working and we have to keep at it. We can never apologize for promoting veganism. So when, when going back to the the word meat, I've heard you use flesh instead uh, as as a descriptor. Is that that would be a better thing to use? I mean, if you have to talk about because sometimes you know, you just have to use a word to talk about what you're talking about. So maybe right. flesh is a better term. Yeah. Well, as I said in the article, one good thing about a flesh versus meat is that meat is dead. Meat is obtained by uh, a violent killer. Whereas the word flesh, for example, in the Bible is used to refer to living beings and seemingly living beings of all species. All flesh shall, shall see the glorious day of resurrection uh, together, or all flesh shall see the glorious day of whatever great thing we're hoping for and working for. All flesh shall, shall see it together. And there's no reason to assume that all flesh in those contexts refers uh, only to human flesh, human living beings. There seems to be a much more general invocation of all earthly beings together mm. shall experience this glorious uh, a day of uh, happiness and, and so forth. So I do like the word flesh for that reason. So the term flesh, I think, and, and I have used it, and you have used it in a way that uh, works well. And of course, the word flesh works well with food and uh, other words that begin with F, you know, good words, of course. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, I, I, I feel uh, like I feel like it, it, 
because it's not used as much, it's more of a kind of a, a bit of a wake up to someone like, oh, this is an animal. We're eating the muscles and tissue of an animal. It feels more like the reality of what's happening. Meat has become so uh, separated from the animal that when you say flesh, you're bringing the animal back into the picture. Well, that's what we want to do. We want to, yeah. our job is to bring animals into the picture as animal advocates. I mean, that is our job to yeah. bring animals into the picture, to bring them into the consciousness and the conscience of people. So uh, I do want to say though, that my favorite term in speaking about animals to people and food is I say, when people say, well, are you saying you don't eat meat? I say, well, I don't eat animals. You, so you don't eat chicken or fish? I say, no, I don't eat chickens. And I, I don't I don't eat aquatic animals. I don't eat animals from the water. I want to say animal free. And uh, as I said in that article, and as I've said many times, the idea of animal free has so many associations with it. It suggests animal liberation. It suggests human liberation. It suggests a freedom from the constraints and confinement that uh, takes so many forms in our lives, including in the confinement that we impose on other animals. So I think animal free, yeah. I like the I, I like the word uh, egg free or the term egg free, yeah. meat free, if we're going to use the term meat, which of course we have, we can't just scrap it all together. We, you know, we have to just have a vocabulary that is flexible without ever losing sight of the animals. But meat free sounds a whole lot more inviting than meatless. Meatless sounds, oh dear, meatless. Uh, whereas meat-free sounds, oh, like you're actually having something that is better than meat. Um, yeah. It's meat-free. Yeah. Uh, it's liberating and egg-free and animal-free. So I think there are uh, ways of speaking. And of course, we want to use the term vegan, but we can use these terms interchangeably. We don't want to always just harp, harp, harp on this with the same language, language, language that kind of puts even ourselves to sleep. Mm. Yeah. And, and on that note, it's so important to not call the vegan food faux or fake or lacking something, you know, uh, nobody wants to eat something that's fake or, or is less than, uh, so that's, that's why I really do like those meat, meat free, animal free, egg free, uh, it describes it, but also brings the animal in, evokes that freedom. Uh, I love that. And also isn't, isn't making the product seem like less than something else. Oh, no. you're a hundred percent right. Hope. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we want, we want people to think that, uh, or to feel that they're, you know, they're getting more, not, <laughs> not yeah. less. Yeah. Uh, getting, uh, yeah. Getting, getting a good product and getting a good product and compassion on top of it and respect for animals. It is definitely more. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. You've also talked about, you've talked about how the vegan community needs to not portray animals only as victims, but showing the fullness of their lives as individuals. And that we often do this in the vegan community because we want to have empathy and sympathy for these animals, but we're seeing them as victims and not as the amazing individuals that they are. Can, can you elaborate on this? Uh, yes, I can hope and thank you because it's a very important question. 
again, one of the features of the movement, which I've been in since 1983, our animal advocacy, animal rights movement, has been to represent animals as they suffer. Jeremy Bentham, uh, the 18th century utilitarian philosopher, is famously invoked for having said, the question is not, can they talk, are they smart, but can they, or are they smart, but can they suffer? Mm-hmm. And uh, Peter Singer then in Animal Liberation, published in 1975, made a big deal of this important point that Jeremy Bentham made in uh, his writings, not can they talk, but can they suffer? And certainly the fact that other animals can suffer is an important attribute about them that we don't want to simply discard. But it got to the point in our movement, and it's still part of uh, maybe too big a part of the repertoire of our way of thinking and speaking about animals and our relationship with them to speak about how they suffer. And we need to keep in mind that when we speak about how much they suffer, we're mainly speaking about how they suffer in the conditions that we artificially and anthropomorphically impose upon them. And anthropomorphically, by that I mean that we force our desires to use them in a certain way, our impulse to shape them both literally and figuratively into the kind of being that we want to exploit into a contortion that causes them to suffer And I contend to suffer in ways that we cannot even probably imagine because these are members of other species who are being forced into conditions and into contortions that have nothing to do with their psyches and with their evolution experience at all. So they develop all kinds of of diseases of body and soul. They develop demeanors, which clearly uh, show in the conditions of exploitation that they're suffering, that they are miserable, that they're unhappy, and that completely conflict with uh, images of them when they are experiencing their earth rights, when they are living as they would choose to live, as opposed to how they are living in spite of how they would choose to live, because we are forcing them to live in a way that only reflects what we want out of them and not who they are. I think that we understand the nature and extent of the suffering of a chicken, for example, much better when we understand who they are when they're not suffering under human domination. So United Poultry Concerns has a sanctuary with over a hundred resident birds and you are there, you live there with the birds and we have an innovative design with a full aviary covering the, the space, a really large area with trees and uh, maybe you can describe it a little for us. There's this growing movement for animal-centered design, quote, animal-centered design is what it's called. And this is in the sanctuary movement for the spaces that the animals live, for them to be more in line with their needs and their desires and not just this farm reflective design that, you know, we're kind of going with now is converting farms to sanctuaries. And so, you know, the, the farm, of course, was not designed for the animals, but to create a product and commodify the animals. 
So I'm curious about the aviary at the UPC Sanctuary. How has the aviary benefited the birds? Well, in keeping with our discussion about uh, getting to know chickens, and by extension, I would say chickens and turkeys and peafowl, you know, peahens and peacocks, getting to know them and see what they do when they have an environment that is more reflective of the environment they evolved in many, many thousands of years ago. In the case of chickens and peafowl, that would be the tropical forest. Uh, that enables us to get to know them better mm -hmm. uh, in terms of who they are, what they like to do, what they choose to do. And of course, visitors to our sanctuary, both literally as well as through websites, uh, our website and that of others is also a way of helping people to become better educated about who these animals are based on what they choose to do when they have an environment that is more reflective of who they are within themselves and where they came from. So back in 2014, I said to our sanctuary helper at the time, who is a building contractor, uh, Wayne Wills, I said to him, wouldn't it be great if we could just enclose this whole place? By which I meant, if only we could keep everything, the trees and the bushes and everything within the sanctuary, but where predators could not get in. And here where we live in Virginia, we have foxes, raccoons, possums, owls, and hawks, particularly. It's a jungle here <laughs> in, in the spirit sense, and there's no question about it. And I've learned the hard way over the years about how vulnerable chickens are mm. to a wide variety of predators. Yeah. So when I said this to Wayne, I said it just rhetorically. I would, didn't expect him to say, well, you know, we could do that. But that's exactly what he said. He said, well, you know, we could do that or I could do that. And I'm like, are you saying you could you could build an aviary that would keep the the foliage and everything? And I because I'm interested in that. So what happened that year? That that was in the May of 2014. By September of 2014, the entire sanctuary area, comprising 12,000 square feet, had been constructed. And we were fortunate because Wayne did virtually all of this work himself. We have, a, he used a type of rectangular wire that uh, none of the predators we have around here can get into at all. And he uh, very carefully tied wires, very thin type, but very strong types of wires around the tree trunks and the limbs in such a way that everything is very tight all over top because the whole top is wire. And then we have these, um, what do you call them? Posts or ballasts or beams that provide the structure to the wiring. And actually the sanctuary is, is very attractive uh, because of the slanted posts and wiring that comprise the ceiling of the sanctuary. But um, the thing is, you can create a structure and you can use netting as a ceiling, for example. It depends on how large your sanctuary area is or how large you want it to be. Not everyone has to be 12,000 square feet. 
many of the micro sanctuaries have a much smaller number of chickens, maybe, I don't know, 12, 25. And you don't need 12,000 square feet for that, although the chickens would be quite happy in 12,000 <laughs> square feet. And you have to have somebody who really understands what the project is and that the whole point of it is to give the birds maximum opportunity to enjoy all of the amenities of the natural world that they would like to enjoy and at the same time keep them completely safe both day and night. Now, for example, our chickens, many of them go up to roost on the high beams at night. They prefer, chickens like to be up high if they can get up high. They don't like to sleep on the ground if they can avoid it. They don't want to be at the risk of predators, et cetera. But, but a, a lot of chickens will sleep on the ground too. And chickens who come from the chicken meat industry, which we're increasingly calling the Cornish crosses, it's very difficult for them as they get a little older to be able to raise themselves up high enough to get on a perch. But if they can, they will. But the point is, Many of our chickens sleep in the bushes and trees at night, and that's their preference. And if they can get up high, that, that's what they want to do. If they come from the cockfighting background, that's almost what they invariably do. And the little white hens who we call, who are called white leghorn hens, the primary type of hen who is used by the egg industry for commercial egg production, they love to go up into the trees and they're able to do that easily. Mm. So they sleep in groups in the trees and you get to see again what they choose to do when they have a choice of an environment that provides uh, choices that are meaningful to chickens. Yeah, I love that that they have the option of roosting of, of perching up in the trees and sleeping outside. I mean, that's very rare for a sanctuary, for anywhere, a backyard, you know, uh, usually to keep them safe from predators at night, they have to go, they have to get locked in the coop. Uh, so I love that the UPC sanctuary chickens have the option to sleep in the trees as they naturally would want to. I love that. Yeah. And the other thing is that chickens look so beautiful in the trees, you know, and the bushes. Mm. It's so different to see chickens in the trees all kind of grouped for the night or compared to seeing them just in a sort of beige colored house with the straw. Mm. Uh, they, there's just a, you know, there's a different look. It's more aesthetically beautiful. Uh, chickens prefer colors and they see the full color spectrum from ultraviolet to uh, infrared. And so it makes sense that they would love to be in a world full of colors. So UPC has created a small card with information about the chicken industry. It's about pocket, it's like pocket size. And it's perfect for handing out just individually to anyone you encounter. Can you tell us about these cards and how they can be used, how they can be used to help chickens? And, and I know you've had some great experiences with this card. Yes, I'm so happy to talk about these cards. And let me first say, I'm going to give a shout out in our next issue of Poultry Press to one of our first members named Barbara Moffat. She and her husband, David, are kind of very alone where they live as far as animal care, animal activism, and they have gone to auctions over the decades where they see animals treated in the most 
chickens and other animals treated in the most cruel and heartless and atrocious ways. In any case, Barbara loves chickens and she's so knowledgeable about them. And we've kept in touch all of these years. And so a, a couple of months ago, Barbara sent me this little card she'd made uh, that she had made by hand and said in her letter that she was taking to the local print store and having prints made of, and that she would distribute these cards here and there where she shopped and in some cases hand them out to a clerk and a, at a counter and so on. And when I looked at this card, which shows a picture that we actually took at a Tyson chicken slaughter plant back in the early 90s in Richmond, Virginia, of female chickens being hung upside down in the Tyson chicken slaughterhouse. And the caption is that she put there is, are you dying for a chicken dinner? They did. Mm -hmm. And then on the back of the card, uh, she included this statement by former Tyson chicken slaughter plant worker, Virgil Butler, uh, who has contributed so much to our inside knowledge of what goes on in a chicken slaughter plant. So the card says, quote, we could no longer look at a piece of meat anymore without seeing the sad face of the suffering animal who had lived in it when the animal was still alive, unquote. He told how at the slaughter plant where he worked, quote, the chickens hang there and look at you while they are bleeding. They try to hide their head from you by sticking it under the wing of the chicken next to them on the slaughter line. You can tell by them looking at you. They are scared to death, unquote. And I thought when I read that, because that we have, quoted that statement by Virgil Butler in other contexts. And it's always gotten people's attention who say, you know, when I read that, that just really seared through me. It just made me feel so bad. And I thought, you know, we talk a lot when we're advocating for suffering animals and including chickens, how much they suffer and how they experience pain. But I thought, you know, Almost nobody thinks, certainly in the regular world, nobody thinks about the fact that as they're hanging there they're, and being treated in, the, in these ways, that they are scared, that they're scared to death, yeah. that they are trying to hide their head under the wing of another chicken. Mm. That is such a specific and visual experience that virtually anybody can relate to. I just think that is so powerful. And when I read Barbara Moffat's card, two-sided card, I said, you know, we have to make this into our card. Uh, We have to have this made into a professional print job and make it available to our members so that if people go to our merchandise page on our homepage and click that on and then click on brochures, and fact sheets, they will see the card and how to order the card. And we have already sold uh, several batches of 50 or 25 or 50. Or and and she was happy. She was happy to share it. We didn't steal it. She, she was glad that we were going to oh, do that. She, she, yeah. was so, 
She was so happy that she called on the phone and left a message and said, when she's, when I send her a batch of these cards, she cried. She said that actually that something I did actually is going to reach more people. It's going to meant something. Mm -hmm. She was just trying to say like, it it just, that it actually, that you actually cared enough to want to use it. Uh, she was thrilled and, and I was thrilled yeah. and, and grateful to her. So, of course, I've sent her many more because she's the author of this uh, wonderful card. And I have to say, when I go anywhere, I always carry these with me. I have them in my bag. I have them in a special little compartment. And, of course, I distribute them here and there in various, on various shelves in the drugstore, the supermarket. But what I particularly like to do when I'm at the uh, checkout counter in the supermarket or if I'm at the eye doctor or the dentist or wherever, I hand this card directly to whoever I'm talking to or whoever's there. And because when they look at the card and I say, don't forget to read the back and they look at it, uh, I'll just mention one other quick thing that I uh, experienced I had at our local supermarket about three weeks ago when I handed this to the woman at the checkout and she looked at it and she said, oh, she said, oh, that makes me so sad. And, you know, she said a few more things, but she was visibly distressed when she looked at it. And I said to her, I said, well, you know, this is what they go through. And, you know, we often don't think of how how scared they are. And I said, and we took that very picture at the Tyson place in, in Richmond. And she said, oh, my God. And I said, but, you know, nobody needs to eat these birds. And I said, and do you know that here in Food Lion, you have a whole section of these wonderful animal-free, chicken-free foods that you can buy, uh, made by these uh, companies, whether it's Morningstar Farms or Gardein. And she said, really? She said, I didn't even know that. I said, well, come on with me and I'll show you the aisle where all these (laughs) products are and where I buy them all the time. I mean, there was no question. She said, well, I'm just so happy to know about this. She said, I wasn't even aware. And uh, really, there is quite a large section, both there in the local Food Lion supermarket and also at the uh, local Walmart. Mm -hmm. They have a whole big section of just vegan chicken products, burgers, just tons of stuff. And we're in a rural area. Keep in mind, this is a rural area. And yet people must be buying these tofurkey products. That's another one, the tofurkey, turkey-free products, uh, slices, and of course, all the different vegan cheeses that I buy all the time, including Gouda smoked vegan cheese, which I have to say, you know, I like quite a lot of that. (laughs) (laughs) But so these cards are a great uh, conversation starter to get. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and I'll say to a person, like when I hand it to him or her, uh, I always say, you know, please don't eat chickens. They suffer so much, you know, and a person will often say, I know, but you can tell that this is, this is something that's reaching them. It doesn't, they don't have to do a lot of reading and they're given a kind of jolt Mm. by reading that the chickens as they're hanging there they're scared to death. So it's like transcending the whole question of meat to now we're looking at whose face was in that meat. Yeah. Well, Karen, we do need to wrap up soon. It's been really wonderful to talk to you. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, my final thought is always this. 
as animal activists, as animal advocates, we always wanna be strong and confident in our advocacy. We wanna speak with confidence about the animals and for the animals. We want to be stand up people. We don't want to flinch and be anxious and shy. Uh, we don't want to scream and yell at people. That's not what we're about. We are not about blaming people, but we want to bring animals and we want to bring people into the fold of compassion and justice for our fellow creatures. Uh, so we want to be strong. We want to be confident and we want to always keep the animals in mind when we're speaking. We want to never apologize. We do not want to adopt an apologetic mode where we say, well, you know, I know a lot of people won't agree with me, but, or I know that you probably don't think this way, but don't ever start off a conversation that way. Be caring, show in the sound of your voice that this animal and what he or she is going through, that this is important, that it matters. So you want, you want the feeling to be in your voice. And we also have to demonstrate that we know our subject, that we're informed. We never want to get to the place where we say, oh, you know, I, I know I'm just speaking to the choir, or I know you, I already know all this, so I don't need to know anymore. Well, we can always learn more and we always want to be open. We want to be educators, but to be educators, we have to undergo continuing education. We want to be the best activists we can. I mean, there's this, a sad sense of which I have to say, we are all the animals have. We belong to the species that has brought misery and sadness and sorrow into their lives. And we have, in my view, an obligation to all the more for that reason, to be the most effective members of our species, to realize how important our job is in speaking strongly and effectively and knowledgeably and caringly to anybody who we can grab, <laughs> grab hold of. <laughs> and, uh, and always too, to listen to what they have to say. I mean, you know, we're not just, we're not there to give them a, yeah, a sermon, a lecture, yeah. um, <laughs> we, but we want to, we want to talk with, with them and, and we can do that and we can learn to do that. We can learn to hear what they're about and what their concerns are. And I have found uh, repeatedly at vegetarian festivals and just my numerous one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one conversations with people that when you let people have a chance, most people, I believe, do care about animals. And you can really strike a chord in people that you didn't even expect you might strike. And so we always want to, we never want to assume that nobody cares. We never want to have an attitude of foregone conclusionism when we interact with people, because that will infect the way we speak with them and it will not bode well. Yeah. Uh, we want to be positive, we want to be caring, and we want to learn how to develop the skills. And uh, once you do that, you're like, hey, I did that. I did that pretty well. I'm going to try that again. <laughs> and uh, you, you build your confidence and we can all do that. Well, you've had decades of building this effective activism, and I, you're, you're just a legend and a true superhero for chickens. And I'm so glad that you were able to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Karen. 
Hope, it's a great pleasure. I've enjoyed every minute, and I hope that uh, all of our listeners are going to develop enthusiasm uh, for our important work by listening to this podcast. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. Karen and I want to encourage you to take an action for International Respect for Chickens Day and Month, and an easy one would be to go to our show notes for this episode and share our video, Do You Know Who Chickens Are? There's so much more you can do if you're inspired. There's another link in the notes to our UPC page uh, for this day of action, where there are other ideas on how you can support and get involved Please help celebrate International Respect for Chickens Day every day and live vegan.